Uh, so very quickly, uh, a, little, a little teaching this morning out of a sermon series that we are doing on what gets in the way. Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The people who follow Jesus are supposed to be world changers. We are supposed to illuminate the world. We are supposed to spice the world uh, with the flavor of, of Jesus. And we are supposed to do this uh, evidently in an amazingly fruitful way. Jesus teaches that, that we who follow him are supposed to uh, release a crop in the world that is you know, 30, 60, 100 fold over. As the Lord influences your life and changes your life, you are supposed to be able to change 100 lives or maybe more. That's the way it's, it's supposed to be. Uh, and if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, probably you have indeed succeeded at influencing some other lives. But have you ex- succeeded in, in the sort of harvest that Jesus leads us to expect? This explosively fruitful harvest. Uh, I think as a church, uh, we have been fruitful, but we haven't been that fruitful. You know, we haven't seen the magnitude of world change and life change and gathering in and conversion and discipleship that we are uh, supposed to see. So one question we might ask is, well, what can get in the way? Is there something in the way that is causing uh, trouble? And sometimes it's simply the way that we identify ourselves that causes trouble. Our identity can get in the way, at least our self-identity. Maybe the reason we're not gathering more people into the kingdom is because we think in some fashion, yeah, that's, that's just not who we are. That's just not how I am. I don't, I don't do stuff like that. That's not, that's not how I roll. We know that we're all supposed to be gatherers in some sort of way. You know, we have a concept of that. But maybe we just don't see ourselves as evangelists. So we have a self-concept that does not include gathering and uh, leading people uh, to faith. We don't see ourselves as boundary, boundary breakers. Or we don't see ourselves as being uh, aggressive enough to really reach out and grab someone and influence their lives. We don't see ourselves as being social enough uh, or attractive enough to really draw anybody to the Lord. Whatever it is, maybe, maybe uh, we just think that we're uh, you know, we see ourselves as, as, as too cool to risk embarrassment uh, of preaching Jesus uh, to people. Or maybe we conceive of ourselves as being a little too dense to pull it off successfully, a little too slow or something like that. Whatever it is, uh, maybe you just can't see yourself doing evangelism. Maybe you just can't see yourself changing someone's life. And if you can't see yourself doing it, then I think we can agree. It can be really hard to pull it off, right? It can be really hard to actually do it. Identity is a concept that I don't like to talk about. Uh, there are two concepts fairly popular out there in the pseudo-psychological discourse, boundaries and identity. And I hate talking about both of them. Um, I, I just have found a little profit in it, although you know, other people do uh, to great fruitfulness. So I don't mean to to rag on the concepts generally. It's just that personally I find, say, identity very slippery to talk about. Uh, In part because uh, it can mean different things at different times. There's a sort of identity that we have that is truly fundamental to us. And I think that is very often uh, worth talking about. You are human. That is an identity that you have. 
you know, in, in light of the terrible things that are happening in the nation. Everybody is fully human uh, and, and is deserving of, of full respect. You were created by God. You are a child of God. That's a fundamental identity, and that's worth exploring. Um, you were created for blessing, you know, to be blessed and to bless uh, other people. You are loved. Uh, you're loved by God, and you are loved by Nana. There's two things I can say uh, with great certainty. Um, but, but there's also the sort of identity that in one way or another is chosen. You choose uh, part of your uh, identity anyway. I'm a believer. I chose that. I'm a husband. Uh, I chose that. Uh, maybe a part of your identity is I'm a surfer. It's a big part of who you are. Or I'm an addict. In some way, you made choices uh, that led to that. Um, and, and the problem is that sometimes our chosen identities uh, grow in our own psyche in such a way that, that we begin to think they're fundamental. Right? And, and then that's, that's where the trouble uh, begins. Uh, maybe because at the time we chose those identities, we were under duress or in great pain or in some way we felt like we were forced to do it. And then it's hard to believe that we have the ability to revisit those identities and really make changes in who we are. Sometimes our choices or our self-judgments become so ingrained that it seems as if they are truly and fundamentally who we are. You know, things like, I'm fearful. That can kind of become who you are if you're not, if you're not careful. Or, I'm careful. That can become who you are if I'm not careful. I'm shy. That was a part of my identity when I was a kid. I'm poor. That can become a self-identity. Um, I'm, I'm a performer, whatever. And sometimes those sort of self-identities, while kind of vague, can become powerful enough to get in the way, can get you from doing the things that will lead to uh, free-flowing and explosive kingdom blessing uh, in, in your life. Uh, I, uh, there's an example of a guy that I've, I've really been ministering to for, for some time been trying to, just trying to lead, lead him to faith. Uh, and, and here's where we are right now. He believes in God. Uh, he believes everything that I preach to him about Jesus. But he will not go to church and he will not worship. His statement is, yeah, I missed that chance a long time ago. I, I, I missed that chance a long time ago. That, that boat has sailed in my life. What is that? That's a statement of identity, isn't it? Like something fundamental has happened to me, I cannot change it. It is who I am. And it's just so deeply ingrained that he doesn't see life change as a possibility. It's who he is. And I can't count the number of times that something like this has happened. Uh, someone has uh, dropped by the office or called me and said, Hey, I have a friend who I think might be interested in Jesus. Can I bring my friend to you so that you could evangelize him. What is that? I think that's kind of a statement of identity. That's, you know, that's the, the would-be minister saying, I, I just can't be an evangelist. But you, Jordan, being a spiritual giant, thank you, clearly will be successful uh, because your identity is, is different different than mine. Uh, when those things happen, and don't try this uh, with me, 
uh, I will probably say something like, so you think I'm going to be a better evangelist of your friend whom you got interested in Jesus than you are going to be? False. Evangelize him. Uh, bring him to church. I'll meet him on the prayer line. Something like that. The problem with, with these sort of misidentities uh, that we get in our heads is that we have almost always learned not to question them. Um, and uh, I would just like to suggest uh, this morning that whatever identity you have, uh, whatever misidentity you have, uh, you question it, or maybe you just ask yourself a question, do I have any misidentities? Is there some way in which my self-concept is preventing me from doing just basic evangelistic gathering, fruitful things. Um, I'd like to read uh, from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, if I may. Uh, kind of a longish text, but a simple story. Uh, it's, just a, it's just an account, early in the Gospel of John, of Jesus' uh, first interactions uh, with some guys who had, who had become his famous disciples. Um, and the setup is that Jesus walked into a certain cultural context when he burst onto the scene. He walked into a context in which a fellow named John the Baptist was really fomenting revival in Israel. John the Baptist had showed up and he had really called the nation to repentance to get really serious about God. And John became quite famous doing it and he, and he won a lot of disciples. A lot of guys were following John around because they thought John was quite a spiritual leader. And then Jesus showed up and things uh, changed and things changed for John. John, of course, heralded Jesus as the one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by and he said, look, the Lamb of God. So to his own disciples, he said, that's the dude, not me. You want to follow him. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Again, Jesus, very seeker-sensitive, very warm, very welcoming. Or maybe just very provocative. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Classic Jesus, right? Oh, are you interested in me? Then you have to follow me. Uh, you discover me by walking with me through life. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day uh, with him, parenthetically, how cool would that be just to kind of hang out in an afternoon with Jesus? That's all I'm saying. Uh, it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. What is that? That's evangelism is what that is. Uh, Andrew uh, bring in someone to Jesus, uh, one at a time. Um, and it was his brother Simon. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Which means what, Bible scholars? Rock. Says, uh, and uh, you, uh, you've been called Simon, which means sandy or shifty or unstable. You will be called Rocky instead. So Jesus is renaming him. Which name stuck, by the way? Peter, yeah. Jesus' name stuck. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, and so Philip found his buddy Nathaniel, 
and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. So Philip has already learned the routine. You just have to come and experience it. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So in fact, Jesus kind of has a prophecy, a prophetic vision in his mind. He saw Nathanael when he was, you know, sitting way off in the distance under a fig tree, evidently before Philip called. Nathanael very impressed by this prophetic word. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Quick life change. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Just a lovely story about people encountering Jesus and people bringing people to uh, Jesus. And what I want to point out here in some of these initial interactions is how Jesus really re-engineers identity for the people that he encounters. He challenges their assumptions about who they are. Um, You know, Peter shows up. Jesus already has insight into who Peter is, at least supposed to be. Maybe he's not there yet. So what does Jesus do? He actually changes the dude's name. He gives him a new label. And what's an identity other than a label, right? Just gives him a a new label, a a name that sort of describes who he is fundamentally according to the plans and purposes of God. Peter evidently buys it and continues following uh, Jesus. The one I really like is Nathaniel. Um, In in my mind, for some reason, Nathaniel always speaks with a New York accent, a heavy New York accent. Because I sort of of envision him as, as, as just a wee bit cynical. Right? He's hanging out under the fig tree. He's just chilling. Philip comes along and says, All right, all right, this time we have found the right one. We found the guy. Uh, who is he? Well, he's Jesus uh, from Nazareth. Nazareth was a very hick, very backwater place, you know, very disreputable. And so Nathaniel's like, Yeah, right. Like anything can, good can come from Nazareth. You know, he has that cynical quality to him, cynical quality. And then, and then he shows up and Jesus just prophesies to him, gives him a little word of knowledge. Oh, a little while ago you were sitting under a fig tree, weren't you? And, and Nathaniel's like, well, that was really impressive. No, he's not. He's like, how do you know me? <laughs> Whoa, what, what, what is this here? You know, a little, little, bit, little bit suspicious. Uh, and then, you know, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus wins him over and, and says, oh, you're going to see greater things than this. Uh, Nathaniel and Nathaniel indeed sticks with him uh, for for the next uh, few years. Peter goes from being sort of impetuous and unstable to being the rock stable. Uh, those of you who read the gospel stories know that it took him a few years to make that transition. Uh, he made a lot of mistakes along the way. Nathaniel goes from being sort of hard bitten, you know, good hearted, but a little a little rough and cynical to Jesus saying, well, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I like the way the NIV used to translate it. Here's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. 
You will not put up with falseness, Nathaniel. That is who you are. Now, I'm going to show you how to discipline that and make it something awesome. Right now, you're just, you're just worried about not, not being fooled. I'm going to turn you into someone who teaches truth. A little different, right? Kind of plays with their identities, uh, with, with their labels. Um, the first thing Jesus did with his followers, and we can get this on almost every occasion, is that he challenged their self-identities, presumably so that their self-identities would never get in the way of the explosive kingdom fruitfulness that was going to come to the world through them. Um, it's taking something in them that was falsifying and adding instead something that was clarifying. You know, Peter... Your impetuosity uh, has made you the terror of everyone around you. Um, but your willingness to do things on faith is going to make you the leader of the church. You know, taking something that was almost but not quite right and turning it into what it was supposed to be. Nathaniel, uh, you are unwilling to be fooled, but I'm going to anchor you in the truth taking something that was almost good and turning it into something that was good. And a lot could be said about that. A lot could be said about the way Jesus tends to clarify our identities. The question I wanted to ask this morning is, how can, we make, how can you make sure, how can we make sure that our self-identity is not a problem for us? You know, some of us would be hard-pressed even to say what our self-identity is, what our self-concept is. But how, how can we be sure that it's not going to get in the way of explosive kingdom fruitfulness? That's the question of the morning. Do you need to re-identify a bit is the question. Um, and in my mind, the question isn't quite as important as just pursuing solution. And I think the solution uh, in where identities are concerned is always, is always truth. It's truth. I, uh, I spent, uh, you know, some reasonable amount of time trying to minister cross-culturally. Uh, cultur and I know cultures that are, like, really foreign, not just a little bit foreign, but I spend, uh, I've spent a f fair amount of time in Muslim cultures, for instance, or uh, deeply Buddhist cultures. And uh, what thrills me and what confounds me about these experiences is how different they are. I mean, the world is really different. People can be really different, you know. Uh, and in, in, a lot of, in a lot of foreign places, there is not what I would describe as a really strong truth culture. Uh, we, in what is mostly a Western uh, culture, uh, tend to be very, very Greek. We have inherited an intellectual culture from, you know, ancient Greeks who just obsessed over truth. Um, we argue facts uh, in, in this country, uh, by and large. But there are many places in the world in which facts must always give way to relationships. You know, so uh, I've had this experience before. I've gone into a Muslim or a Buddhist village, actually maybe, maybe performed a miracle, maybe made someone believe in, in Jesus, believe in Father God, I said, all right, now are you interested in following Jesus? Let me explain to you how to do that. And that person would say to me, oh, wait a minute. I have to discuss this with the village. I, I can't live my life according to this truth unless we all 
we all do it together because relationship is, is more important. One thing trumps another. The facts must give way. And so if you argue facts with them, it actually does you no good. Right? You, have to, you have to change uh, your, your approach. Um, security, sort of relational security, trumps truth. Factual truths uh, in those instances. I actually, uh, there, are, there are a lot about relational cultures that are that I, I appreciate, that are very strong, uh, but in, in seeing the distinction, I've actually come to perceive it as a weakness. I understand why Jesus, who was speaking into a, to a culture exactly like that, you know, not, not like a truth Trump culture, but a relationship Trump culture. He was speaking into a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern uh, Jewish culture, uh, and he said, I am the way, the truth, or the truth will set you free. You have to admit what is, and then let everything else coalesce uh, around that. Um, I think that remains accurate uh, today. What we do as individuals, even in this culture, is that we often choose security instead of truth. Most of us want to be safe, secure, powerful, insert whatever synonym you want, rather than truthful. Uh, we do the same sort of thing. Identities or self-identities, even lou lousy ones, are almost always attempts at security. And you have all seen this in middle school, right? Uh, middle school is where identities start to break apart and filter out. So you have this click, you have that click, you have, I don't know what it is today in middle school, you know, but you have like the nerds, the geeks, we used to call them. I don't, I don't know what, but they like, you know, they study hard or they're you know, really into computers or something. Jocks, there's always, a, there's always a jock group, right? There's always the athletes. There's the popular crowd, maybe. Does this still exist? You go, you're younger than I am, most of you, so you're all looking at me like, yeah, how would I touch are you? Well, my kids aren't teenagers yet. Well, I'll get there. Um, what, what is happening there? Well, what's happening there is that middle school is a very unsafe environment. There's a lot of competition. And so kids feel very unsafe in the midst of that competition, so they craft identities that make them feel safer. Identity groups, right? I'm, I'm a nerd. Uh, all I have to do is compete academically. I don't have to be popular. Nobody has to like me, and I don't have to be strong. I'm a jock. All I have to do is be strong. Eh, schoolwork, you know? I don't really need to care about that. I'm just sort of safe here. Or I'm, you know, in my day we called them hoods. What, what are the sort of the, the dark hoodlums? What are they called today? Nobody's willing to say? The rough guys, the gangs. Like there were gangs at Punahou. Oh yeah, there, there's some rough customers there. Punks, there are punks at Punahou? All right, the Punahou punks, right, you know. They were like, you know, we're punks. We don't have to care about anything. And what we will do is sort of put I don't care and that will be our identity, you know. Um, whatever, you know what I'm talking about, right? Just give me an amen here, I'm trying really hard. Um, what, we want, what we want to do is sort of separate those. Uh, those things are all about false security, right? They have nothing to do with truth and everything to do with trying to feel secure, uh, trying to feel safe, trying to feel as if you can make it. Uh, we do that uh, a lot in, in life. You know, we find our security in things that make us feel safe. And it can be almost anything. It can be your job. It can be a given relationship. Um, it can be 
a sports team that you choose to be fanatical about, something that tells you who you are so you don't have to worry about what you're not. That's where we get into trouble. Something about us that anchors us so we don't have to worry about competing on all the other fronts. Whatever you think you are, whatever you've chosen to be, here's the secret, I think, to making sure that identity is not getting in the way. Here, here's, here's what, don't, don't diagnose yourself too harshly, but here's the way to make sure uh, that your self-concept is not getting in the way. Whatever you are, be that plus an evangelist. And that will take care of it. Whatever your identity, whatever your self-concept is, fine. Be that thing, but also be an active uh, evangelist. And, and I learned this from Jesus. Um, because when Jesus, we, we know that he has a fondness for like playing with people's identity, relabeling people when he meets them. What's the first command he gave all of these guys? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to change who you think you are. And here's, here's the fundamental calling. You're going to be fishers of men. You're going to be evangelists. Follow me and be evangelists. Everything else will settle out. Be an evangelist. And it breaks through all of these false uh, security uh, concepts. Uh, true identities, true identities, accurate identities, helpful identities will always accommodate evangelism because evangelism is our most basic calling on earth or you could say it's the biggest social truth in the world what's the biggest social truth in the world the biggest social truth in the world is that people need to be in a relationship with god okay and so that's the truth that we all need to accommodate together and and i'm not i'm not saying be a minister in the kingdom of god although i say that a lot i'm saying specifically be an evangelist and that will really help order your self-concept. Evangelism in particular. You can, be, you can be cool and distant and still be a pretty decent prophet. But you can't be all cool and distant and be an evangelist. You can't be an evangelist and ever think that you're safe from social judgment. You know, you can't play that game and be evangelistic. You're going to have to engage people. You're going to have to orient toward truth in relationships in order to be an evangelist. So that's why it's the linchpin to proper identity. That's a rather bold and sweeping claim, is it not? Evangelism is the linchpin to proper self-identity. Yeah, I I understand that, but I just, I think it's, I think it's true. I think I, this is what I understand from the way Jesus reshaped people. And it's what I understand about the kingdom of God. And we get various statements about that uh, in other parts of Scripture as well. Uh, Rather famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking a little bit about his identity. Uh, He was once a a rather famous up-and-coming Jewish scholar. All of that changed when he got involved with Jesus. He would eventually say, To the Jews I became like a Jew. To win the Jews to evangelize Jewish people. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not really under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those. The scripture goes on, uh, you know, to the Greeks, I become like the Greeks. To, To the weak, I become weak. 
the strong, I become strong in order that I might win some for Jesus. In other words, Paul says, I've become all sorts of things. I've had all sorts of identities and self-concepts, and they all coalesce around the mission to gather people into uh, a loving relationship uh, with the Lord so that by all possible means I might save some, he says. And that's how you know that Paul has a healthy identity. And that's how you will know if your identity is false, trying to make you all secure and protected and safe, or true, releasing who you actually are, according to Jesus. I think I know the answer to troubled race relations in the country. How's that for a sweeping statement? What's the answer? I know, the right, the right answer is always Jesus. Jesus is the answer. But specifically, I think the answer is evangelism. Evangelism. I, I think um, it, it's an ironic thing to say because a lot of people will claim that evangelism destroys cultures and races, right? Those evil missionaries that go somewhere and just destroy cultures in the name of evangelizing them for, for Jesus. All right. You find some troubling history in some places. Hawaii included. Actually, the missionaries did, by and large, okay, their children, <laughs> not so much, sort of raped uh, the land and the culture uh, in some ways. Um, but real evangelism honors people, right? To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To the Greeks, I become like the Greeks. You know, Paul said, I get into their culture. I get into who they are. I become like them. What does that cause me to do? It causes me to understand them, really to honor them from within. And that's how I bring them to Jesus. I want to know who they truly are so that I can label them correctly as Jesus did. You know? Um, what, would, what would Ferguson, Missouri be like if... if uh, the black people, we're trying to evangelize the white people in a Jesus way. What would Ferguson, Missouri be like if the white people were really trying to win people to the, to the kindness and confidence of Jesus? Change everything, would it not? You know, if that were the cultural context in which these little legal troubles, you know, emerged then they would not explode. I, I, really, I really think that's, that's the key. Do you follow me? Or is that just outlandish? I think evangelism uh, is, is the key. Um, not just preaching Jesus in some vague way. Um, there has to be more love, respect, and forgiveness toward people if you are trying to bring them to trust Jesus. Um, last line. All of our self-identities are temporary. Whoever you think you are, you haven't quite figured it out. I mean, there are some true things that we can say about you. You're all human. You're all children of God, etc., etc. But you have no idea what that means yet. Um, I am fond of quoting from 1 John 3. Um, we know right now we are children of God, but what we will be has not been made known. We only know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. We don't know what we're going to be yet. We, we know we're children of God. And what do children do? They change. They grow up fast. 
And one of the ways in which you're going to grow up fast in the Lord is by evangelizing and learning and changing as you go. Accommodate evangelism in your life, and your identity will probably shift, but not in a bad way. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, you came uh, to the world to uh, reconcile people to Father God, and you did it in a self-sacrificial fashion. You actually assumed a new identity. Uh, you were a divine and lofty spirit who became human, who put on flesh, who joined us in our dirtiness and our lowliness. I pray, Lord, that you would make us evangelists like that are willing to become whatever we need to become in order to win some by all possible means. And we pray this humbly in Jesus' name.